Good morning. Today we have the opportunity to talk about faith. You might want to remember that word. There might be a pop quiz in just a moment. So, faith. What is faith? It might surprise you. We often think of it as a religious thing, but everybody has faith. Everybody lives by a certain measure of faith throughout their life. For instance, and here's a quiz. When you sit down in a wooden chair and you back yourself in and you just put all your weight on it, what are you exercising? What are you exercising? All right. When you're coming up on an intersection full of cars going one way or the other and you apply your brakes and you have no fear that you're just going to go right into all those cars, what are you exercising? When you're driving 45 miles an hour and there's a car coming the other way at 45 miles an hour, so 90 miles between you and yet you pass by just a few feet. As you pass that car, what are you exercising? Exactly. When the sun goes down each night and you don't in your heart go, oh my goodness, I wonder if it's going to work out the next day. That could be the end of it all. But instead, you're very calm because you're exercising. When a Cubs fan looks at each season and they say, this will be the year, what are they exercising? Stupidity, of course. Every one of us at some level exercises faith every day in the things that we're doing. And so we want to talk today about faith because it seems an appropriate place to pick up off of the Easter message that we just had. You might have been here for the Easter message. I hope you were. It was quite a day. If you recall, Siler did an amazing job talking about the story of God. And that story of God was built around a prologue and two acts. The prologue, of course, is the fact that God created the world. He created it good. He created man and woman good. He created us with free will, and in that free will, Adam and Eve chose against God's plan. They chose their own way. And in doubting God's goodness to them, they set a course of sin that God corrected in the short term, but he also gave a promise. And he said, a seed of woman will come, and I will make things right in the future somewhere. So with that thought that God is going to make things right in the future, the lights go down, the curtain opens, and we start Act 1. And we start Act 1 with Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a place and a people and a promise. And as my people, you'll be privileged, it'll be good, and there will come a day. And so Abraham has Isaac, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob becomes named Israel. And Israel is the people we know, the Israelites, or the Hebrews, or the Jews. And we track these people through the Old Testament, ups and downs, times of belief and times of doubt. We track them as they uh, move into slavery in Egypt, but as they're brought out in the Exodus, as they wander in doubt, as they move through the conquest, as they go up and down with various enemies as they unite in a powerful kingdom, as they divide in a divided kingdom, as they go into captivity and exile and eventually a return. But the end of the Old Testament, the end of Act 1, there's still a question of when is God going to do what he said, that promise, because we're supposed to be a people with a place and a promise, 
and God is good for his promises, but for 400 years we have our intermission. And then at the time of Christ, Act 2 is beginning, and we see John the Baptist getting born, and we see Jesus getting born, and Jesus performs miracles, and Jesus has great teaching, and Jesus gets a following, but he also gets those who hate him. And these religious leaders who are against him have such fear that they, they devise a plan, and so he is betrayed, and so he is arrested, and so he is tried, and so he goes to the cross, and so he dies, but so when he's put in the tomb, he rises again. And we start to see this resurrection power, and we start to come to terms with that promise of God that it comes into the person of Jesus. And Siler took this story one further. Some of you might have even said, uh, Jamie, it's not just two acts. Remember, there were three. Because Siler introduced this idea, there's a third act. Do you remember what that was? It was the cardboard testimonies. That third act of a response to God's goodness and faith. That third act of people who look at the messes that they made or that they're victims to, and they looked at their situations in life not with despair, but with faith. And in their faith, they turn the board because they recognize that God has goodness even in the midst of their trouble, that they can consider it pure joy even as they struggle along. And some had resolution, some are still in it, but by faith, they have confidence in God. And so I want to talk about that faith. It seems right that we would pick up on the idea of faith today, building off of Easter and thinking about a story of faith, especially as we go back now to Luke, faith, doubt, and everything in between. And so we come to a point in Luke where the faith of the centurion is the story we see in Luke chapter 7. If you want to open it up, I guarantee it'll be worth it to just have it open in your laps, whether that's from your Bible, Luke 7, verses 1 to 10, or whether it's in the Pew Bible, page 1022, 1022. We're going to stay there all day. Well, for this next 20 minutes or so. Um, and we're going to talk verse by verse and understand what this story has to tell us about cardboard living, about chapter or act three living, about living by faith. Let me read it to you, please. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, heal the servant, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. And so Jesus went with them. He wasn't far from the house when the centurion sent friends to Jesus and said to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, and he goes, and this one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had returned or had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. 
So let's go through this. I'm going to use the first two verses to help us set the scene. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this, saying all this, refers back to the Sermon on the Plain. You might remember Siler made a joke. Not a Sermon on the Plain, but a Sermon on the P-L-A-I-N, on the Plain. And these are the sayings that we had in our Right Side Up series. So these were the messages that were, love your enemies, or look at yourself before you judge others, or blessed are the hungry and the thirsty and the poor. These were upside-down messages, but that's what they're referring to when they say, when Jesus had finished saying all this, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum is their hometown. It's, uh, if you took the Sea of Galilee, it's the northwest corner. Now, you might recall Jesus originally had a hometown of Nazareth, but in Nazareth, he went into the synagogue. He opened the scroll to Isaiah 61. He started to preach a message. People got angry about that message, and they wanted to kill him, and they ran him out. So he left that town, and he went to Capernaum. And this is the base from which Jesus is operating as he begins his ministry. In this base, Jesus has healed a paralytic who was dropped through the roof. At this base, Jesus healed a man uh, full of demons. At this base, Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. I never did know how Peter felt about that, but I'm sure he loved it uh, because it was one of Jesus' miracles, and it was an amazing story. So this is a place, when we talk about he went to Capernaum, this is home. This is a comfortable environment for him. This is a good place. What we read on in verse 2, there's a centurion servant whom his master valued highly, and this servant was sick and about to die. A centurion uh, think century is a person, a ruler, a military ruler, or captain, or sergeant major, over about a hundred people. And so this guy is a little bit tough. He's been sent to a land that doesn't really want a Roman presence, and he's there to enforce the law, enforce Roman rule, enforce uh, the tax system. Polybius, a historian, describes centurions in this way. They must be not so much seekers after danger as men who can command. They're steady in action. They're reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into a fight. But when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. That's a centurion. Think perhaps Mel Gibson, Braveheart. That's a centurion. Think perhaps... I don't know, Robert De Niro in The Godfather. Think maybe the most interesting man in the world. Maybe he's centurion-like, or dare I say, and I hesitate to do this, Chuck Norris. <laughs> That's how cool a centurion is. And the centurion, what we notice, has this servant, and the servant is someone that he cares about. Um, he valued him highly, and this is rare because servants were just seen as property, as tools, but somehow Jesus cares, or excuse me, he does too, but the centurion cares about his servant who's sick and about to die. So we read now as we come into the story and we set up, this scene is starting, the centurion is sending a Jewish delegation to the rabbi Jesus in order to seek his help 
for his servant. And unfortunately, the very ones, the Jewish elders that we might expect to be a perfect example of faith, they actually set up what I would call a myth of faith. So the first point I want to make is there is a myth of faith. Let's read as we see that played out. So he sent the elders of the Jews. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly. So these elders likely weren't under compulsion. They weren't under duress. They weren't forced to go. But when they got there, they actually put energy into this. The Jewish elders pleaded earnestly with him. And they said, this man deserves to have you do this. Deserves. Jesus, you've got to do this. He totally deserves it. Jesus, you would not be Jesus if you don't do what he needs. And it's interesting, isn't it, that these Jewish elders are the ones pleading on behalf of a Roman official. It's unexpected, really. Because if you recall, the Romans moved in and they were hated by the Jews. When you think of Jesus' own party, Jesus' disciples included a Roman zealot who absolutely wanted to remove Rome from their special people, special place, special promise, felt like the Romans were interfering with that. And the Romans and the Jews were also at odds. If you can recall in Jesus' party, there is Matthew the tax collector. Tax collectors were hated. Why? Because they sided with the Roman authority imparting taxes against their own people. They were seen as traitors. So normally we've got Romans and Jews at opposite ends, they're at enmity, and yet somehow with the centurion and the way he acts, the way he rules, the way he governs, the way he is, even the Jewish elders are willing to go to bat for him. There's not enmity, but there's actual some sort of friendship. And then they come before Jesus and they say, this man deserves to have you do this because he, the centurion, loves our nation and the word here is ethnos, the same idea of ethnicity or a people, not so much a country. It's not post-1967 Israel we're talking about. But he loves our nation. He loves our people. And he has built our synagogue. So we get more of an idea about the centurion. He's got wealth. But not just wealth, he's got generosity. The wealth that he has, he's willing to use on behalf of this group, the Jews and build their synagogue, their church. So it's not quite the tough guy we imagined at first, because he's actually quite kind, and that's why the Jews plead. But they plead under the myth of faith. They plead because, well, he's nice. He built our church. Jesus, this is a good thing. He deserves your help. But let me finish this idea with this. I'll read it to you. The myth of faith is that religious practice, religious titles, a religious family, or religious people, or good works, or anything at all should compel Jesus, and by extension God, to act on behalf of another person and do what they hope. As it's seen later, and as we understand through the rest of the text for today, they're thinking the centurion deserved this isn't the least bit compelling for Jesus. 
You can't go to Jesus on the basis of your works, on the basis of your habits, on the basis of your church attendance, on the basis of your good standing with friends and neighbors. It's not how we approach Jesus in faith. So we'll move on to the centurion side, and we'll talk about the miracle of faith. Not the myth of faith that the Jewish elders represented, but the miracle faith. And as is often the case in the Jewish stories, uh, in the stories in Luke, the hero is actually the unexpected person in these stories. You may recall some of the other stories. Uh, There's a story of the rich man, a good and prosperous religious man, and Lazarus, a poor man who sat outside the gates with sores and wounds. And in that story, it's Lazarus who is favored by God and given a place in heaven, not the rich man. You may recall the story of the Pharisee who's praying in good, appropriate, and long words all about how good he is and how much he deserves God's favor. But in contrast, the tax collector, the hated one, who's actually held up for his good prayer, who just says, God, I don't deserve anything. And he beats his breast and he says, I'm nothing. But that's the prayer that God honored. We talk about the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And two noble people, a lawyer and I think a doctor, pass by and don't offer help to the man who's been beaten on the side of the road. But who is the hero of the story? It's the Samaritan, a foreigner, a half-breed, the least likely to be the hero in the Jewish mind. Well, it's the same way here. A foreign oppressor Gentile is the one whose faith we see as miraculous. So Jesus went with them, and we pick up in verse 6. He wasn't far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. Look at the contrast there. I don't deserve. The Jewish elders thought he does deserve. He says, I don't deserve. And even more, he's being considerate. You see, if Jesus, as this rabbi, were to go inside of a Gentile house, Jesus would have to go through a ritual and extensive cleansing before he was even seen as fit to be among his people. The centurion doesn't want Jesus to go through all that. That's not necessary. He says, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. I don't even consider myself worthy to come to you. And this explains why he's sending people to Jesus. He feels unworthy. Now, to those who are around, they say, unworthy? Really? You are the Roman centurion. And by your rights, you shouldn't be thinking anyone around you is any less worthy than you. You are the most worthy, you think, when you enter the room. And yet here he's recognizing Jesus is more worthy. This little rabbi and his band of friends, this guy is more worthy. And then he says to Jesus, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Think about that. Are there many things, uh, at least before the clapper and Siri, that you could say the word and they'll get done? There isn't a whole lot that any of us can do with the word except in terms of ordering people. Katie, can you bring me my slippers? I can say the word and that gets done sometimes. Um, But what in your life do you get to just say the word? And yet the centurion looked at Jesus and knew that he could just say the word. The centurion goes on to explain that when he says go, they go. When he says come, they come. When he says do this, they do it. But he knows he's got people to do that. Who did he think 
Jesus would be talking to when he says the word for his servant to be healed. It's really quite profound that he should think at all that somehow Jesus could say the word and his servant could be healed unless he knew that somehow Jesus could say the word and by his authority the molecules and the mitochondria would come together and work in such a way that Jesus had authority over this person's body and the inner workings and nature and everything. He understood what Jesus' authority was, and he understood that Jesus was under authority. As we read further, well, who does he think he's under the authority of? He knows that Jesus is a direct representative of God to the world. It's so profound and so powerful, and it takes a while for it to sink in for me. But this idea that he says, Jesus, you say the word because I know you command whatever it is that's got this person unwell, and I know you speak for God, and therefore I have confidence that you say the word and he will be healed. It's a bit amazing that he knows this. It's a bit like when Peter is asked, who do people say that I am? And Peter returns and says to Christ, you are Christ. And Christ plays back. He says, that's exactly right. And you know what? That was revealed to you by my Father. You didn't get that. You're not smart enough to figure that out. Just like the centurion didn't come to his conclusion by science and by logic and by intellect, he came to it because of the miracle of faith, the fact that God would pour into his heart some insight and understanding about who he is as a person in such a way that if we respond to the miracle of faith God puts in our heart, we actually get to see faith lived out in a powerful way. The centurion recognized what God was showing of himself, and he responded to it and said, Jesus, I need you to do this. The miracle of faith is any time God creates, plants, reveals faith in us, and we respond to it. Remember in Hebrews, it says about Jesus that he is the author. He's the one who scripts faith in our hearts. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. This is a powerful idea. So the myth of faith is that it's about us and what we do and what we deserve and what we think we bring to the table. But the miracle of faith is when we come before Jesus knowing we don't deserve anything, but somehow God has planted faith in our hearts and we respond to it by faith and we see the result of faith. The third thing, the result of faith. Reading in verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Amazed. Jesus was only amazed twice with a person. One time with the centurion, amazed at his faith. Another time that Jesus was amazed... He was amazed that the people in Nazareth kicked him out of town and didn't believe. Amazed at the faith and turning to the crowd and following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Even in Israel, the people you'd expect to be the people, the promise, the place, not the same faith. So the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. It's worth noting, and then in the study guide for your small groups or for your personal study online, I've encouraged you to look up the word faith in the book of Luke. Uh, I've given you notes to where it's found online, and you can look at the instances of the word faith. Whenever Jesus rewards faith, faith or blesses faith, 
It surrounds the unexpected people. He goes to the prostitute, to the paralytic, to the blind, to the woman, to the Samaritan, to the foreign Gentile. When he compliments faith in the book of Luke, it's always in the least, the last, and the lost. And so it's funny in today's world where Christians are seen as critical and intolerant and judgmental and hypocritical and exclusive, that the nature of true faith isn't any of these things. It's not about who's out and who's going to hell and who can't belong. It's about God reveals some part of himself into our hearts, and when we respond to it in faith, God draws anyone in. Almost even the least expected people are invited into a world with God. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You know what that means? God is sitting there going, He's watching for it. He knows we have an opportunity to respond in faith. And his servant was healed. We come to Act 3. We come to this call to faith, and it brings the question, well, what is that faith? And there are two ways I want to talk about it. The first one is justifying faith. Justifying faith is that faith through which we come into a relationship with Jesus. It's the faith through which our eternity is changed forever, nature of eternity, I suppose. We come into this relationship, this permanent relationship. If we put uh, the slide on the screen, the next slide, we know that Mike has often talked about this, the negative five to five spectrum. And on this spectrum, negative five uh, is Satan, Also, then on positive five, we have Jesus. No one in our lifetime gets to either one of those extremes. That's why they're open circles. At our death, those circles will be closed. We'll be either fully with Jesus or fully with Satan. But in the middle, we're born in negative numbers. Negative numbers might represent, you know, obviously Satan, Hitler, Packers fans. You get the idea at least. Um... But at some point, when you have justifying faith, you get the understanding and the idea that God has loved you, that he's had a plan for you, that though you are a sinner and separated, that Jesus made a way. And so justifying faith is the recognition that through Jesus we have hope for eternity and can live in relationship with God forever. And that's the point where we move from negative to positive numbers. Positive numbers. Jesus... Mother Teresa, because I dissed them earlier, Cubs fans, positive numbers, you get the idea. We have the chance to live there, and people then can say, oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ, that cross at the center, and I've moved over. Well, how do people know if they're a Christian? In the Alpha Course, we talk about this in three ways. I'll move through them quickly. You know that you've moved into positive numbers, At one level, because of the Word of God. The Word of God is full of promises to us, promises about God's love, promises about the way God will respond when we respond to Him. So it says in the Word of God, for God so loved the world, He loves you, the world, that He sent His only Son, His only begotten Son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in Him, believe in Jesus, you'd have eternal life. 
How do you know if you belong on the positive side? You know it if you recognize God loves you, and through his Son, you can have eternal life. You know it because you know of God's Word. There's a promise that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But while we were yet sinners, God sent his Son to die for us, Romans 5.8. And the wages of sin, the payment we get for our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, Romans 6.23. These are God's Word that show us that we can be confident. Just like in my marriage, I have a marriage certificate. When I look at that, I know I'm really married to Amy. Because faith is a relationship, it's kind of easy to draw the parallel to marriage. I know I'm married because of the marriage certificate. But I also know I'm married because there was a wedding day. We had it here, September 7th, 1996, standing right here. I got married to Amy. And when I look back at the pictures and remember that day, that's our wedding day. I entered in. And for me in faith, July 11th, 1987. I know where I was and what I was doing. Not everyone has that memory. That's okay. The people who know that they've crossed into positive numbers don't need to know the exact moment. God's concern is that you know you're there now, not when you got there. But we can know from a marriage certificate that we're married. We can know from a wedding day that we're married. We know from God's Word, the Word of God, and we know from the work of Jesus that we are Christians. The third thing is the witness of the Holy Spirit. If you ask me how do I know I'm married and in a relationship with Amy, I know it because for the last 17 years we've planned vacations, we've shared a budget, we've had children, we've gone through ups and downs, we've done life together. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Because for the last 27 years, I've had an experience of living by faith, living with Christ in my life. I've had an experience of God's fruit and spirit coming to birth in me, his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his gentleness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his self-control. These are the characteristics that are born in a person who walks by faith and not by sight. How do you know if you're in positive numbers? It's the Word of God, the work of Jesus, and the witness of the Holy Spirit in your life. And what God wants you to know, for any of you who don't know where you are now, you could know today because he says in Romans 3, or Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, gently knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with him. I will have fellowship with him. I will start a relationship with him. That's God's promise to us. You want to know where you stand? You can receive that invitation and open the door to him. So that's justifying faith. It moves you to positive numbers. But another one of our goals is not just to get into positive numbers and then go, <sighs> made it. It's to keep moving towards Christ and becoming more like him, and that's sanctifying faith. That's the faith that day in and day out flips your cardboard and says, I believe. I consider it pure joy whenever I face trials of many kinds, it says in James. When we look to the things that are going on in our life and we say, God, I believe you're good. I believe you love me. Though he may slay me, though my situation looks horrible, said Job, yet I will trust in him. You continue to believe in the promise that he knows the plans he has for you, plans to prosper and for a good life. 
That when you look at your situations, you don't look to the left and the right, but you know with Joshua, have I not commanded you, then be strong and courageous. God's Word is full of calls on our life, and the more we get to know it by studying His Word, by praying to God, by gathering with others, by being in church, by living the Christian life, we have opportunity as God reveals Himself to respond in faith. And as we respond in faith, we move closer. So what's the right way to come out of an Easter service? The right way is either to say, I want to get right with God, or I'm right with God, but I want to get moving. It's time to move closer to Christ. It's time to become like Christ. Not because we deserve it, not because we've done so many great things, not because we're who we are. It's because of who he is. And in that light, Paul, who had so much going for him, said, I don't consider my accolades to my credit, but I consider them rubbish, rubbish that I might follow and press after Christ. When Mike says press on, that's what he's saying. He's saying move closer to Christ.